book of Nahum. Nahum, this is the sequel to the book of Jonah. We're continuing our verse-by-verse exposition through this book of the prophet of Nahum. We'll be looking at the end of Nahum chapter 1, verses 7 through 15. So Nahum chapter 1, verses 7 through 15, that speaks of the goodness of God in the midst of his wrath. Nahum chapter 1, verses 7 through 15, hear the word of the Lord. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. They are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. For you, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Praise God for his word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your goodness, for you are good. You are our stronghold in the day of trouble. You are our refuge, and you know those who have taken refuge in you as your people. And I pray now as we study this passage about your, your wrath upon your enemies, but your goodness to your people, I pray that you would take this passage, minister to us, and teach us. I pray in Christ's name. Nikkei, Nikkei, that word probably doesn't ring a bell for many, it's the Greek word for victory, Nikkei, it'll be the word, it's the word that's proclaimed back in ancient times from a a messenger who's on foot, who runs back to the city to proclaim that there's military victory, their people have won, there's been a great victory. This Greek word would also become the name of a shoe company here in America probably have heard of this shoe company. They don't really pronounce it in its Greek pronunciation of Nikkei. They call it Nike. If you've heard, it's just a small little company, you know, billions of dollars worth. Uh, But it's named after the Greek word of of victory. I mentioned this Greek word of Nikkei because it's the pronouncement of the good news of victory. Now, I mention it here in our passage because that's exactly what is pronounced at the end of Nahum chapter 1. That's what verse 15 is. Verse 15 is, behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news. There's a, our chapter of Nahum chapter 1 ends with a proclamation of, of victory, of the good news of victory over God's enemies. One can even make an argument that the whole book of Nahum is just that. It's a, it's a proclamation of the good news of God's people's victory over their enemies. 
Revelation. That's a little bit different from what we usually think of the book of Nahum. Usually when, you, when we think of the book of Nahum, we think of a sad and dark book in the Bible, one only about wrath and only about destruction. Now, it is about wrath and it is about destruction. I mean, this passage is about wrath. I mean, chapters 2 and 3 is a lot about God's just wrath for sure. But as we'll look at this passage, it really kind of helps us understand the rest of the book. When we think of God's wrath, there's actually an aspect of God's wrath upon our, his enemies as one that is a comfort and good news to us as his people. It actually functions as a way of comfort for God's people. For God is promising a victory over their enemies, one in which he will bring about by his sovereign power. And this theme is really seen here in our passage in verses 7 through 15. Nahum the prophet is playing the role of that messenger. He's running on foot. He's running back to his home country of, of Judah. And he's telling them, victory, victory. God has won the battle over our enemies. Over our great ancient foe of Nineveh, God has won. He has brought them down. So you can think of the book of Nahum is really a book of Nike for God's people. Victory for God's people. And that's the main idea of our, our sermon this afternoon is that there is good news in the wrath of God. For God is the stronghold for his people. And will bring about their victory over their enemies by destroying them. So we'll see this declaration of, of good news, of glad tidings in two parts in this passage. First, there's the good news of God's wrath, where it brings refuge for God's people. This is seen in verse 7. And then in verses 8 through 15, we'll see the good news of God's wrath as, as, as victory over God's enemies by destroying them. So not necessarily what you would think of with God's wrath as good news, but there's, there is this aspect of good news where he protects his people in the midst of his wrath. And he destroys his people's enemies. All right, so our passage begins with really the source of all good news, the source of all goodness, which is found in the Lord who is good. So the good news of God's wrath is that of God being a refuge, a stronghold of his people in the midst of that great day of trouble. Look at verse 7 with me. It begins this way. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Now, this one verse, verse 7 in here in Nahum chapter 1, it is a glorious verse. If I had to pick one verse to be the most important verse, or really the theme verse that defines the rest of the book, it would be this verse, verse 7. So I think it really shows what the book of Nahum is, is really all about. It's not truly about God's wrath. It's about the goodness of God towards his people. Because one of the implications of God's goodness to his people is him pouring out his just wrath against God's people's enemies. I think that's the best way to really understand God's wrath in the book of Nahum is, is out of his goodness. Destroying his, his people's enemies by protecting his enemies as well. And we'll spend most of our time this afternoon really looking at verse, verse 7 and pondering and meditating on this one verse and the glorious truth that it teaches, which is the goodness of God. Now, Spurgeon of old, the great Baptist preacher of old, he, he believed the same about this verse, being an important verse in the book of Nahum. He preached a whole sermon just on this one verse, and he began his sermon this way. I would encourage you to read his whole sermon of, of Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. Uh, really, really soul-stirring. But he began his sermon of Nahum chapter 1, verse 7 this way. He said, have you read this chapter through? It's a very terrible one. 
It's like the rushing of a mighty river when it's nearing a cataract. It boils, it seethes, it flows with overwhelming force, bearing everything before it. Yet right in the middle of the surging flood stands out, like a green island, this most cheering, comforting, and delightful text. And Amen. He's exactly right. Uh, this verse, Nahum chapter 1, verse 7, is just this verse that's just filled with great cheer and comfort and to be a delight of all of God's people. And it's proclaimed by Nahum, who is the prophet of comfort. Remember, that's what Nahum means, full of comfort. Nahum proclaims, the Lord is good. Yahweh is good. I want to pause and ask you, have you ever considered that attribute of God? The goodness of the Lord, the goodness of God. Have you ever considered that attribute of God in great length? The goodness of the Lord is interesting. Bible theologians of old and some of the greatest theological minds of the past. Think of people like Augustine, if you ever heard of him, or Aquinas, or Stephen Charnock, who's one of the great Puritan theologians, systematic theologians during the Puritan era, all of them consider the, the goodness of God as one of, or if not the chief attribute of God, the goodness of God. Uh, let me read this quote. It's a little bit longer, but it's by one of the great Puritan theologians, Stephen Charnock. He's got this book called The Essence and Attributes of God. Um, he writes this about the goodness of God. He says this, The goodness of God is the most pleasant perfection of the divine nature. His creating power amazes us. His conducting wisdom astonishes us. His goodness, as furnishing us with all conveniences, delights us and renders both his amazing power and his astonishing wisdom as delightful to us. The goodness of God comprehends all of God's attributes. All the acts of God are nothing else but the stream of his goodness. This is the captain attribute that leads the rest to act. This attends them and spirits them in all of his ways of acting. This is the complement and perfection of all of his works. So that's him speaking about the goodness of the Lord, the goodness of God. And I think Charnock is on to something. He's a far greater mind than me, but I think he's right. There's something about the goodness of the Lord that is, is, is one of those, those prime attributes of the Lord. And, and it's interesting. If I were to ask you know, many of us, if I were to give you a quiz to give me five attributes of God, who in here would put down the goodness of the Lord as one of the top five? Probably not. You know, we'd probably put down, well, what are some? You can yell them out. What are some attributes that immediately come to your mind about God? Mercy, grace, holiness, sovereignty, power, wisdom. I mean, those are maybe the ones that come first. When we're asked what attributes come to mind of God, but the, not only the many theologians of old would say, no, the goodness of the Lord should be the first one that comes to your mind. Not only do they say it, but they say it for a good reason, because if you look throughout the Old Testament, it's the goodness of the Lord that is probably repeated the most. The Lord is good. Even just that one phrase, the Lord is good, that's mentioned here in Nahum 1.7, Nahum didn't come up with that one. That one phrase is kind of, it, it, it's almost like a creed throughout the Old Testament that God's people just had rolling off their tongues about the goodness of the Lord. I can't go through every text, but let me just mention a few texts for you to show that. It's not just these great theologians of old that think the goodness of the Lord is a key attribute of God, but, but really we see it in the scriptures themselves. 
For example, the first few chapters of the book of Genesis, after each day, what did the Lord, what did the Lord say? He did what was good, really implying him to be good, for he's the one who created it. And it was good. His acts of creation were good, for he is good. The goodness of, of God is implied time after time throughout the narrative of creation. In Exodus chapter 33, when, when Moses asked to see the glory of the Lord, how does the Lord respond? How does Yahweh respond? Exodus 33, verse 19, he says this, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. It's almost like even the Lord himself, when Moses asked to see his glory, the Lord said, I'll show you my goodness. Like God's glory and God's goodness is one and the same. His goodness is the sum of all of his attributes, you could say. It is his glory. Some have said, which I believe rightfully so, that the key attribute of God in the book of the Psalter, that divine songbook of God's people, is God's goodness. Some of my favorite ones uh, in the Psalter on the goodness of the Lord are in Psalm 34. That was our call to worship. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. Taste and see that the Lord is good means to experience the goodness of the Lord in your life with all your, 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 your senses by faith. Psalm 100 verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 100, 106 verse 1. Praise the Lord or oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 135, verse 3. Praise the Lord, for he is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. In Zechariah 9, the, pro the prophet exclaims this. For how great is God's goodness. Not just a little bit of goodness, but how great is his goodness. And how great is his beauty. I mean, the, the, the Psalter is just filled with the, the attribute of the goodness of God, which makes sense because it's the, it's the goodness of God that causes us as his people to delight in him. And it causes us to worship, which makes sense for the songbook to be filled with that attribute of God that, that causes his people to be filled with gratitude and thankfulness and to break out into song. That's not only in the Old Testament, but it's also in the New Testament. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, the Apostle Paul describes the riches of God's goodness. For the Lord Jesus himself describes the goodness of the Lord as his essence. If you remember, the rich young ruler comes to, to Jesus and asks him, him being that, that, that good teacher, how does Jesus respond when he's called the good teacher? Do you remember? There's only one who is good. God. God is good, Jesus responds. Even the English name of God itself comes from the word good. I don't know if you, you, you knew that. It's almost like synonymous with goodness. So these theologians of old saw the importance of this attribute of God. The Old Testament scriptures attest to this truth. Even the Lord Jesus himself. So hopefully you see the goodness of the Lord is, is a chief among the attributes of God. Or at least given a prominent role in, in the scriptures. With that said, what does it mean that the Lord is good? It's actually kind of 
difficult to define. Even when you look at some of the great theologians of old and how they define it, it, it it's, it's rather difficult. There's two aspects of the goodness of God. There's the aspect of his moral perfection, which is true. Something about his goodness talks about his moral perfection. But primarily his moral perfection that leads him to being a benevolent and generous God. When we think of the goodness of God, we think of, yes, his moral perfection, but also his benevolence and his, his generosity to his people, to his creation. There's something about the goodness of God that's associated with the delight of God's people and his delight in them. I think that's really what is meant by the goodness of the Lord. And here in the midst of a dark chapter of destruction upon Nineveh, Nahum proclaims this Old Testament creed. I mean, I get the picture of Nahum just singing the song in the midst of destruction. He's singing it. The Lord is good. Yahweh is good. Now, why is Nahum proclaiming this truth about God at this point in this letter? Look at what follows. It says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Nahum is saying the Lord is good because the Lord is a stronghold for his people. He's a refuge for his people in the day of trouble. When Nahum was prophesying here in this book, God's old covenant people were in a day, were in a season of great trouble to be sure. Nahum proclaims while they're in this great trouble, I mean, they're, they're, their nation is crumbling. The north has already been conquered. The south is crumbling. Their enemies are so powerful. Their leaders are sinful and wicked and, and, and uh, worshiping idols. Everything looks bad. But Nahum in this midst says, the Lord is good, though. The Lord is our stronghold. The Lord is our refuge. He is our place of safety and protection. Not in our army, not in our king, not in ourselves, but it's the Lord. He's the one who's good, and he's the one who's our stronghold. And not, on, not only does Nahum say God is our stronghold, but he says he knows us as his people. Look at verse one, uh, verse 7. He says, he knows those who take refuge in him, meaning he's not just a stronghold generally, but he's a stronghold specifically for us as his people. It's almost like a, a, a mother hen who takes her wings to be over her, her baby chicks and brings them in. God knows who's taking refuge over him. He knows us one by one, and he's protecting us. He is our refuge and protection. And what good news this is, that no one can pluck us from his hand, for he is our refuge. He's our stronghold. No one can, can, and can batter down that door, God's door of protection upon his people. And here's the good news of God's goodness for us this afternoon. It was good news for God's people then, and 650 B.C. is good news for us today, which is this. As God's people, we will not experience or endure his holy wrath. Instead of wrath, he protects us from the evil one, and he is our refuge. Oh, that the Lord is good. We don't experience his wrath, but instead, what do we experience? We taste and see that the Lord is good instead. Instead, we experience all the benefits of his goodness, like mercy and grace and, and love. That's what we get at his pe- as his people, because he's good. And our enemies, because he is good, he pours out his wrath upon them. That's why throughout the Psalter, when God's goodness comes up, the response is give thanks to him. 
give thanks to the Lord for he is good for what he's done for us. For we don't deserve all of his blessings. We don't, we don't deserve him to be our refuge or stronghold. I mean, God's people in Nahum's time didn't deserve that. We don't deserve this, but he still gives it to us. I have his grace. We'll ultimately have his goodness. So we see and experience the goodness of the Lord in our lives when we experience the spiritual blessings like faith, regeneration, sanctification, adoption. All of those things are, are, are flowing out of God's goodness to us as his people. There's even aspects of the goodness of the Lord that, that even the unbeliever receives in this lifetime. What we call common grace. Those who reject God still enjoy laughter, don't they? Belly aches of laughter. They can still experience human love and joy and, and all those aspects of, of, of others, of family and friends. All of those things are just, that's out of God's goodness to his creation. But most of all, we see God's goodness to specifically his people, the elect, as he protects us and, and, and showers us with blessings that are found in Christ Jesus. His goodness is just overflows as we look at his works of redemption for his people and salvation. But we also see here in this passage the goodness of the Lord as it relates to how he treats his enemies. Look at verses 8 through 15. Here we see the goodness of the Lord in his victory over his enemies. Let me read verses 8 through 15 aloud. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are entangled thorns like drunkards as they drink. They're consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are full as strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, you will afflict you no more. I will afflict you no more. And now I'll break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Now those are some very intense and sobering words of Nahum the prophet to the people of Nineveh. He's prophesying God's holy wrath and destruction upon them. Notice the language. It's poetic, yet, yet terrifying language of God's wrath, making a complete end of his adversaries, pursuing enemies even into the darkness, not letting them escape, making a complete end, consuming them fully, their name not going on, their false gods being cut off. Very strong language. Destruction, end, cut off. It's clear Nahum is prophesying that the, the Ninevites don't have a chance. They don't have a chance at all to survive God's righteous judgment. No matter what they try to plot, they can't outwit the Lord. They can't outmaneuver the Lord in battle. No matter how strong they may be, which at this time in history, they were the strongest nation possibly in the world, the strongest army. And even then, Nahum is saying, you are nothing compared to God's power. 
He will completely obliterate you. They have no, they're no match for God's omnipotence. They'll be cut off, completely destroyed. And then this section ends with verse 15. This announcement of Nike, of victory, of God over his enemies. An announcement to the people of their victory that God has won on their behalf. Look at how this chapter ends. Verse 15. Behold, upon the mountain, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The messenger Nahum brings good news, glad tidings that Nineveh is destroyed. That God's people would not be pestered or oppressed by them ever again. But that there's true peace. Now, where do we see the goodness of the Lord here in verses 8 through 15? It's all about God's wrath. God's wrath against his enemies. Makes us ask, how is that good? I mean, this passage begins with goodness. It ends with good news of, of the messenger proclaiming good news to God's people. How is this good? Well, God's benevolence, his care, his goodness for his people is to protect them from evil. And what's the opposite of good? Evil. To be good, you must hate evil. God hates sin. And he's good to his people. And by being good to his people, he protects his people. And to protect his people, he pours out his wrath upon his enemies. His wicked enemies. The goodness of the Lord includes protecting his people, which entails destroying his people's enemies. Really, as one of the theologians of old uh, wrote down, mentioned that the the wrath of God is actually an implication of the goodness of God. I think think he's right. God is wrathful because he is good. Because he is holy. He does hate evil, and evil must be punished. That's why the wrath of God is good news. It can be described as glad tidings because sin and evil are being destroyed. We should rejoice in that. That that is good when evil is destroyed. It's good news. Think of when the Allies won World War II and the news hit the shores of America. How did Americans respond? Are we real sad? Oh, this could just be Germany or Japan. I can't believe it. This is terrible. No, when the news, the news of victory came to our shores, there was celebrations. Saying we won. We won in the face of this great evil, right? This great wickedness, um, this great challenge to our nation. There was joy at the victory. It was, it was truly good news for, for Americans when we one World War II. Same here, the news of the Ninevites' destruction is, is good news to God's people. It was a time for them to rejoice and thank God for his goodness, for the Ninevites had become a very violent and wicked people. Now, what's interesting about this announcement in verse 15 is Nahum's announcement of God's victory over the Ninevites and their destruction, it, it, it's somewhat unique. The reason is Nahum prophesied around 650 B.C., the Ninevites will be destroyed in 612 B.C. Now, what's the problem here? Nahum 
is coming back to Israel. He's pronouncing victory of God over the Ninevites 40 years before it happens. That's not usually how it goes, is it? You know, you don't, no one goes and proclaims victory until the victory is completed. I mean, it's like someone proclaiming that we won World War II three years beforehand or, two, or halfway through the war. It sounds preposterous. So it sounds kind of ridiculous reading verse 15 thinking, what in the world is Nahum talking about? Remember, he's writing this. God's people have received this prophecy, and they're thinking, he's, he's, he's acting like we should all be rejoicing right now and happy and that there's this great victory. And, and God's people are looking around thinking, I do not see a victory. We, we are not looking good. All, all the things that they can see with their eyes does not look like a victory at all. But Nahum, announcing this in verse 15 is actually the most completely rational thing he could do. Now, why is that? It's because when God says he will do something in the future, you can act as if it's already done. And that's what Nahum was doing here. He was prophesying. He said, God said this. And because he said it, it will happen. So we can rejoice right now because the victory has already happened. That's faith. Love Nahum's confidence and trust in the Lord and trying to lead God's people in, in that confidence and trust and saying, no, there's victory. Rejoice. God will destroy them. He's promised to do so. We can bank on this promise. Nahum receives this prophecy from the Lord 40 years before it happens. He's running to the mountaintops of Judah and proclaiming victory, victory, victory. Love it. Again, he declares it in a time which God's people look the most dire. It's when the Ninevites look the most strong. Yet Nahum's trust in the Lord's word and his promise, he trusts it fully. And why does he trust it fully? Because he knows that God is good. Now, church, do you know, do you, do you truly know and believe that the Lord is good this afternoon? Have you considered the goodness of the Lord and what you've experienced in your own life as you've experienced it. Yes, you may know his sovereignty. You may know of his holiness. You may know of his omnipotence. But do you know God to be good? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Are you in awe of who he is, and do you delight in his goodness? Is your heart filled with thanksgiving? When you consider the blessings that have come forth from his goodness that you've received in your life. Do you trust his goodness to such a point when he says something in his word or promise? Do you count it to happen for sure, without a doubt? Do you know his goodness to such a degree when you read a command in his word that you don't see it as a as, as some sort of weight upon you, or you don't doubt it to be good, but when you read a command of God from his word, you see it as good. For it comes from a good God that his law is good and holy. Do you see his commands and you love his commands and you want to obey his commands? Do you see his promises and you love his promises and you trust his promises because he's good? Or do you waver? Do you waver and shift upon God's promises? Because you doubt his goodness or you doubt his faithfulness. 
When you read God's commands, do you doubt his commands to be good for your for your good? If so, the problem isn't with God. It's not with his word. It's not with his commands. It's not with his promises. It's not with him, for he is good. The problem is with you. It's with your rebellious heart, not acknowledging and knowing and trusting his goodness. When we receive God's promises and his commands in those sorts of ways, the core of it is that we don't truly believe God is good. We don't truly know his goodness like we should. You may know other attributes of him, but you don't really know his goodness, that he's good in all that he says and all that he does and all who he is. I want to quote something uh, again from Charnock, once more on God's goodness. And hopefully this will just lead you to worship, as, as I've read it this past week, to just be in awe and wonder in, uh, of God's goodness. So Charnock writes this about God's goodness again. He kind of closes his chapter this way. He says, what is this, the goodness of the Lord, but the train of all of his lovely perfections springing from his goodness? All are streams from this fountain. He could be none of this were he not first good. When his goodness confers happiness without merit, we call it grace. When his goodness bestows happiness against merit, we call it mercy. When his goodness bears with provoking rebels, we call it patience. When his goodness performs his promise, we call it truth. When his goodness meets with a person to whom it is not obliged, we call it grace. When his goodness meets with a person in the world to which he hath obliged himself by promise, it is truth. When his goodness commiserates a distressed person, we call it compassion. When his goodness applies an indigent person, we call it bounty. When his goodness succors an innocent person, it's righteousness. And when his goodness pardons a penitent person, we call it mercy. He ends this way. He says, all summed up in this one name, goodness. Amen. Where would we be without goodness? The goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without hope, we would experience none of those truths. None of those blessings that pour forth from his goodness, like grace, mercy, none of that. Instead, we will receive wrath as his enemies. And we must close as we consider the goodness of the Lord by considering the Lord Jesus, who is good. For the Lord Jesus is God, and he is good. He is our good shepherd. The goodness of Jesus can be seen both in the ways displayed in this text both in the, as the refuge of his people and in the destruction and victory over God's enemies. Think about Jesus' goodness seen in the protection of his people. Where do we see God's goodness in the Lord Jesus in protecting and saving his people? On the cross. Right, we see it. Jesus is protecting his people. He's, he's being our stronghold and fortress for us. For God's wrath is coming down, and instead of hitting us, the Lord Jesus takes it. He's the stronghold and refuge that doesn't buckle, that doesn't crumble under the wrath of God, but satisfies it completely to the last drop for us because he is good. His death on the cross was an act of protection, an act of covering our sins, an act of Atonement, taking the brunt of that which we deserve 
He took death. The goodness of Christ is seen in his death on the cross for our behalf. In his death, he saved us as his people. I mean, no greater display of the riches of God's goodness than in Christ saving and atoning death. But we also see the goodness of God in in his wrath and hatred for sin in the cross. For God destroys his enemies in the cross of Christ. Now, he doesn't destroy the Romans. He doesn't destroy some nation. He doesn't destroy some flesh and blood. Instead, what does God in his wrath destroy at the cross? Sin, the greatest and most ancient of foes, Satan, death. And we rejoice at that. It is good. We look at God's wrath being poured out and destroying sin, and we see that as good, that God is doing it. God defeats sin at the cross in Christ. He pours out his wrath in such a way that sin and Satan has lost his power. He's completely obliterated. He has no chance of winning. For sin and Satan have no chance of thwarting God's plan of redemption for his people. The cross is God's victory over sin. And next time you think of the word Nike or even think of the think of Nike. Don't think of the shoe, but think of victory and victory won by Christ at the cross for us as his people over sin. And this is the proclamation of victory we're to proclaim to all people. When I read Nahum 1 verse 15, it's so easy for me to think of Romans chapter 10. That passage from Isaiah that's quoted in Romans. Where Paul says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And if you read it in the context of Nahum. We preach good news now. You know, just how preposterous and ludicrous it sounded for Nahum to, to go into Israel and to proclaim victory 40 years beforehand, even though everything looked terrible. You know, that's exactly what we're all called to do, to look that silly to the world. What's the most rational thing to do? We're called to go out into the world, every mountaintop, and proclaim victory that God has won. And people might be looking around saying, how has God won here in this world? Have you not looked at the news? Have you not looked around us? There's no victory, but we proclaim victory in the gospel because God has won. And what he did at the cross is just a, is foreshadowing what will happen in the end. That there's a great day coming in which Christ will come and he will, there will be a complete end to sin. There will be no more. He'll usher in the new heavens and new earth, and he will save his people and glorify them. There'll be no more sin. And then to his enemies, he will destroy once and for all. That's what we're proclaiming as we proclaim the gospel to all people. We're proclaiming that Christ has already attained this victory. If you want to flee from the wrath to come, as Brother Paul read of Sodom and Gomorrah, you want to flee that wrath that's coming? Well, the Lord is good. Repent. His goodness is to lead us to what? Repentance. His goodness and kindness to lead us to repentance. This is the victory that we're proclaiming. So church, lift up your head. There's no reason to be gloomy. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Be a people of comfort, declaring the best news of all, the the, the glad tidings, the good news to all that of victory, the victory of Christ over sin. 
call everyone to faith in Christ, to have true peace with God. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a promise that you can bank on. Like every other promise, you can trust that promise because God is good. God is good and he's good all the time. So all of his works for our redemption are, are flowing out of his goodness. Amen. Let's close in prayer.